To point of sale, the retail supply chain show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. Today, we are talking to one of those great retailers, one of the great retailers of the 21st century, one that was born in a digital age and is really doing incredible things when, when it comes to direct consumer commerce. When, when I think of D2C, I think of digitally native brands. There are a couple that come to mind, and Wayfair is definitely one of them. Wayfair has grown exponentially over the past couple of years, doubling sales from 2018 to 2020, going to add a few billion more this year and doing it in a very interesting model, this marketplace model with me today to discuss the model, discuss what makes uh, Wayfair supply chain so special and differentiated is John Esborn. John is the head of global expansion strategy for e-commerce ocean supply chain. It's a little bit of a long title. We'll let John explain exactly what he does at Wayfair here in a moment, but let me take a moment to thank my sponsor, ArcBest. ArcBest is more than logistics. Whatever you do, whatever you ship, ArcBest makes it easier for you to do business. ArcBest combines reliable capacity, innovative technology, and trusted relationships to take the complexity out of your supply chain and keep your shipments moving. That's what makes ArcBest more than logistics. John, thanks so much for taking the time this afternoon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So, John, you have spent uh, many decades in supply chain and logistics. You are certainly a veteran to this industry. You spent a bunch of times as a freight forwarder and, some, and, and other times in different roles. Talk to me about uh, some of those roles. This is your introduction to FreightWaves TV, so customary to give a little background on yourself. And tell me what, you know, some of those things you learned in your previous roles that are influencing your work at Wayfair. Uh, sure, boy. Um, I'll try to cover that in 30 seconds or less. Um, started uh, driving a truck when I was in college to pay for college and uh, very proud of that. Loaded airplanes on cargo ramps, um, been in operations, sales, run hubs, run uh, warehouses, uh, global sales, um, customs brokerage, nothing pretty much, there's not too much I haven't done in the business, which I'm actually, that's kind of the fun thing. I mean, people look at our world, right? As if it's just this one simple little thing and it's extremely complex. And um, so it's been a pleasure to get an opportunity uh, and be trusted to to do lots of different things along the way in my career. And that's, I can, I can agree with that, thinking about just the complexities of this industry. I certainly thought that as a, a recent grad going into supply chain, I thought that, you know, brokerage, uh, 3PLs, being here in Chattanooga, that was kind of it. Uh, and that is just the beginning. Uh, speaking of complexities, John, I asked you uh, on our previous call what the last year has been like, and you answered with one word, and that one word was insane. So tell me a little bit about the last year at Wayfair. Well, sure. I mean, I guess just the industry in general, right? Not just Wayfair. I mean, every time we think it's okay, we finally got over the the hump. We can see a little bit of a little bit of a look over the the peak of of, of the mountain, and we get knocked back down. It's like whack a mole, you know. You get knocked back down, and and so now we're dealing with we not just Wayfair, but the industry is dealing with you know shutdowns in Vietnam. Uh, Malaysia's never really come back online, and and. Uh, uh, ENTN is full of backlogs and people are talking about carriers are talking about running extra loaders. Um, so it's crazy. I mean, the one news story that fascinated everybody that got all the attention was the, the Suez Canal and probably of all the different things, that was the one that had the least impact. It's just, it kind of, you know, it was funny to look at a container ship sideways in a canal, right? Um, and uh, it really had less impact than shutting ENTN down for a couple of weeks and uh, 
factories being shut down in Vietnam, and uh, it, it's uh, it's you, you, you know you can't make it up. And I told people stop saying it can't get any worse than this. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk about your challenges, right? You have. Um you guys are dealing with the same supply chain challenges that everybody is, but you guys did take some proactive steps to kind of get out ahead, at least on the container availability and the port congestion side of things. But talk to me about those factories and then some of your other challenges. Are uh, factory shutdowns right now your biggest challenge? Um, you know, it depends upon the lane, right? Uh, trade lane for people that are familiar with those terms. Vietnam's a challenge right now because factories are closed. Yantian's a challenge right now because the port was closed, but the factories weren't, and now there's a backlog. And of course, as everyone knows, equipment wasn't getting empty. Equipment wasn't getting back into the port because the, the container ships either skipped the port or uh, were sitting offshore and and not able to get uh, to port. So, you know, it's almost like right now it's 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 a instead of kind of this holistic set of challenges that all of Asia is subject to. It's it's maybe much more um, uh, port by port or trade lane trade lane by trade lane. Uh, you know, at the moment. I see. John, let's take a step back and talk about just the Wayfair model for a moment. You guys are a marketplace model where you are inventory light, uh, but you are also sourcing from a wide range of suppliers. I think you mentioned there was 13 or 1400 across Southeast Asia. And you are um, you're, you're working as an NVOCC. You guys are a separate NVOCC. Talk to me just about the model of you uh, sourcing from suppliers and also you know, aggregating uh, some of those shipments over to the U.S. and to Europe. Just talk to me about the, the model itself and how that influences how your job works. Sure. So I think people that are aware of us from the business and or listen to our earnings calls uh, are pretty clear that um, you know, we're, we're basically, I guess the term is a consignment sales uh, entity. Um, we don't really own anything that's selling on, on the Wayfair.com platform. I mean, we do own what strategically makes sense to purchase and, and, and bring in as the importer of record. but. Um, uh, in general, we don't own it, but look, it's our supply chain, right? Or it's our mutual supply chain with with the um, with the sellers that are selling on our website, which we refer to as suppliers. We, most of us know a supplier is a factory in Asia. A supplier to us is a seller in, in, in the U.S. or or Canada, U.K., Germany, who has happens to have a factory in Asia. So, so anyhow, um, many of them are small. It's a long tail um, and. Uh, not sophisticated and more entrepreneurial than they are, um, uh, uh, you know, trade savvy. And uh, so, however, it's as much our supply chain to make sure we have goods in our fulfillment centers to, to be sold as it is uh, theirs. And so we kind of mutually uh, combine for our mutual supply chain uh, to make sure that we can get the containers where they need to be, the product where it needs to be. Um, and, uh, you know, saleable, if you will. Um, and so that's really been the motivation of the forming of what's called Castlegate Logistics, which is our NDOCC arm, um, of which I'm a qualifying individual and, and, uh, uh, and had the opportunity to start, uh, gosh, four and a half years ago now. Um, and, and that's vital to us to both control the flow of the goods and also to also control, um, our wholesale costs. You know, in terms of being able to get goods moved at a decent price in this, well, I'm not sure decent price comes into the conversation too much right now. Yeah, John, that's a, a really, you're in a unique position here where you are offering a price to your suppliers, right? A price that includes uh, transportation and logistics. But if you charge too much for that price, it can eventually come back and bite you on your, your cost of goods sold, your warehouse or your, your, um, 
your um, wholesale cost, excuse me. Is that is that correct? Just talk to me about that kind of position. Yeah, theoretically, right? I mean, and, and you know, to be clear, we don't require, insist, demand that our, our sellers use our, our supply chain uh, to program. They're more than welcome to source it on their own if they feel they can, you know, they're better off doing it or whatever motivation they have. Um, but the ones that work with us typically come back to us and, and say, um, uh, it's just easy to use you. It's easier to have you work on moving the containers for me. And I think I mentioned to you previously that, you know, one of our sellers had said to me, uh, at one point, uh, one of the ones I happened to get to know pretty well, that he's much more interested in focusing on, focusing on his five-star reviews, right. uh, than he is, uh, managing the supply chain. And, you know, this individual's business is a very entrepreneurial, was growing rapidly with us. And, you know, he wanted to focus on five-star ratings and getting developing his next product versus opening warehouses and then spending his time on a plane going around and keeping track of all of it, right? So, you know, there's, there's absolutely a mutually beneficial um, aspect to utilizing our uh, ocean supply chain into our fulfillment centers. Yeah, that makes sense, John. People are, you know, more entrepreneurial in nature, as you said. You know, you said that uh, one of your biggest challenges right now is, of course, factories getting opened up, but it is different, you know, lane by lane or port by port. But that is, you know, you guys are in, you know, you're one of the first um, executives at retail that I've spoken to that doesn't eventually, that doesn't just jump to port congestion, container availability. Uh, they, those are kind of the two big point of emphasis these days. For you guys not to be, for that not to be the number one challenge right now, it's a little bit of a privileged place to be, but that's not by accident at all. That's because of some of the shrewd, you know, uh, decisions you guys made back in December. So talk to me about why you guys have capacity, have capacity that you need right now and sure. because of those decisions you made. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, look, it's not like they're not problems, but, you know, we're also in a hugely, a huge scaling mode. And so we're focusing on, you know, long term while trying to solve for the for the short term. But I would suggest to anybody they need to kind of use their network and pay attention to what's going on around them. And, uh, you know, back last fall, I heard that um, just, you know, in c- connecting with uh, contacts within the industry, some of them are port operators. Um, I mean, just a variety of different entities, um, as well as we stay very well connected. Uh, we feel it's important to stay connected uh, with the carriers at the C-suite in order to um, uh, protect our success in our growth in the long term. And so, you know, we just kind of heard and kind of read the tea leaves that other people were going to market and we better go to market. And, and we talked about it internally uh, and uh, we made that decision. And, you know, Thank God we did, A, but B, boy, I wish I did more, (laughs) quite frankly. And then, you know, and then and then we kind of got that vibe. We decided, okay, we need to do this for, you know, all the touches in our supply chain. So what I mean by that is Dre uh, as well um, and, and and our origin partners to make sure that they had the capacity to deal with. The increasing volume that that we were going to have, and uh, you know, so we, we live in forecasting. We're a tech company. We're you know, we look at our data, um, and we felt that uh, you know we had a view of what our demand was going to be, and with that knowledge of the demand, we aligned what our uh, we had satisfied. I guess our perspective was what our ocean demand, uh, ocean allocation, or, or capacity was against the demand. And, and so then next we had to satisfy, you know, the DRE capacity against the demand. And, and I think we were successful. We've been successful at doing that. And, you know, we've got some pretty sharp people on the team, uh, especially on the DRE side. Um, 
gentleman that's that's running it for us. Uh, Jack Ashveria is is uh, is a tremendous asset and stays right in front of it. You know, I wish I could tell you it was me, but Jack's right there, staying in front of it the whole time. I'm sure Jack is involved in this forecasting, because I want to stay on that for a moment. You you told me about some of, of how you guys grew so much over the course of 18 months. Um, you know, through TEUs absolutely exploded, yet you were still so accurate with your expectations on year end. How were you so accurate with projections and, you know, what, what was involved in that uh, forecasting model? Like, did you continuously update it or, or what was the plan there? Yeah, yeah. We, we update, we revamp, revamp again. Um, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, I'm not going to tell you we're perfect. Maybe somebody would tell us it was blind luck, but you know it's really not. It's just we're constantly in there evaluating, modifying. Look at our gaps. Why was there a gap? How do we make sure we improve it more for the next time? Right. Um, so uh, from that standpoint, um, you know we live in it. We live. We live in our data, um, and we use. We listen to a variety of sources. At one point, we were hearing from our origin operations what the demand was was significantly lower than what we were looking at from our side with the forecasts. And, and we sorted that out and reconciled it and, uh, you know, came up with, with, uh, with new numbers. So um, you can't be so married to your, your uh, answers, uh, your forecasts, you know, that, um, that you take them, that you, you got, you got to be reevaluating it constantly. You can't be so married to the answer that you fail. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I see. And I, I can only imagine that having the tech background that you guys have at the company helps with, with those types of forecasting. That's definitely one differentiator, I'd say, if I, we're talking about things that make the Wayfair supply chain special. It seems that demand forecasting is, is one of those things. Another one, the biggest one to me, one of the conversations that, I, you know, the reasons I wanted to have this conversation was the fact that you guys have built this entire supply chain, an international supply chain around big and bulky stuff, really heavy stuff. And that's that, you know, things that weren't sold online 20 years ago, you guys are now selling a lot of. So talk to me about the challenges of, uh, of moving big and bulky stuff and how that has changed and and uh, really impacted the way your supply chain set up. Sure. Well, on the front end, on the early part of the of the move, meaning on the ocean supply chain, I mean, think about it. Right. I mean, we're hearing horror stories. Uh, I, I have some I'm from a large family and actually have some family members I was at an annual picnic with last week who came up to me and were like, you know, what can you tell me? What do you know? And, and one of them told me they had just moved a container for $20,000 from Yentian to LA. I mean, that's, that's like, that's like shocking, right? Mm-hmm. Now think about that. You know, so you're paying $20,000 for a container from Yentian to LA. What if the commodity in there is a large item? What if the commodity in there's couches? How many couches go in a container? You'd be surprised how few there are, I think. And, and, and so now, you know, $20,000 to move something that a year ago was maybe on a bad day, 17000 You know, divide that by, I don't know, 60 couches in a container and there's your cost of couch, that the increase in your in the cost of your couch. So that's a huge concern. Back to the beginning of the conversation, our motivation to control our supply chain, right? Then beyond that through, and this is not my area of specialty in the company, but if you move on through to, you know, delivering it to your home, um, our, our, you know, you, well-documented, mentioned in, again, uh, um, the importance of our of our uh, business model by Yerd um, Shah, uh, one of the co-founders, you know, controlling that experience. We want to make sure that when that couch or bureau, dining room set, patio furniture is delivered to your home, that you have a tremendous experience because you'll come back and buy again if you have a tremendous experience. And so those are a couple, you know, one of the 
relationships that they're passionate about, Neerj and, and Steve Conine, is the relationship that the buyer has with us. Um, and one of the things we track aggressively is a return buyer. Um, you know, Wall Street beat us up over the last three or four years before uh, a year ago, uh, quite frankly, because we were losing money. But all the while, we we're building out that infrastructure. And that was the same infrastructure that allowed us to hit not just the home run, but also just the grand slam, to use a sports analogy, um, in uh in, in the last year, because we went from 9.2 billion, I think, to 14.2 billion in 2019 versus 2020. I mean, that's phenomenal growth considering there was no acquisition, but it was that infrastructure that we were investing so heavily in up until last year. Um, well, we continued to, to invest in, but the big investment was done that allowed us to just nail it and get goods to people when they bought them and when they wanted them. Um, so yeah. that's a vital part of us and our success. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable. The five billion dollars added without an acquisition. It's not, you know, it's it's a huge growth rate uh, just in general, but it's especially a huge growth rate when you look at the base you're coming off. You're coming off a base of nine billion dollars and growing as fast as you are. It really is remarkable. And just a, a stat: seventy-five percent of your Q1 sales came from repeat customers. That that customer experience is obviously a really important point uh, to the Wayfair model, but. It's equally important to the supplier experience is what, you know, you have told me before. This has been a big focus at Wayfair. It's, you know, I think this is a place where other marketplace models kind of fall short on focusing as much on the supplier as they do the buyer. Talk to me about that focus on the supplier experience as well at Wayfair. Well, sure. I mean, look, uh, variety on our website is what brings you to us to buy. And if you can find the item that you want, um, then you're going to come back as much as a, if you can find it and be the experience is tremendous, then you're going to come back. And so one of the ways to do that again, uh, is, is that our sellers love us and are passionate about, uh, about, you know, selling and helping, uh, Wayfair, uh, develop and, and, uh, uh help, helping Wayfair have a wide variety of items to buy. The, one of the examples that was always given was bar stools, and I don't know how many we have. Maybe there's a thousand different bar stools you can buy on Wayfair, but you know there's only one, two, three, maybe that you want. Um, and if you can't find them, you're going to go someplace else. And so, making sure the suppliers and we attract more and more suppliers, and they're successful and they get the support they need for success, is just as important for um, our success uh, as as it is for a. Um, uh, as it is for the person buying from us. Two really important relationships. And John, on the most recent earnings call, uh, Shaw talked a little bit, CEO uh, Shaw talked a little bit about aggregating containers on behalf of your suppliers, uh, you know, either port side or, you know, either side of the port, really, and how that kind of insulated not only Wayfair, but, you know, your suppliers, as we talked about earlier, you're the one offering them a price here. Uh, it insulated them from some of the big price inflation and also allowed you guys to leverage your scale for carrier purchase. Can you just add some color mm -hmm. on what that process looks like, this aggregation process? Um, well, there, I guess there's a couple scenarios. I'm not exactly sure of the quote that you're referring to, so I'll give you a couple answers to that. One is just aggregating volume, right? I mean, we all know that the the carriers this year kind of turned their back on on small small uh, importers. You know, somebody that might move. I mean, I've heard as many as 500 containers a year, but I mean, maybe they move 300, 250 containers a year, and they're just not able to use the leverage to buy a uh, at a price point that's successful for all of us. Again, mutual supply chain, right? Uh, and so then they maybe need to go to an NBO who may or may not be successful at buying uh, at a certain price point for um, 
uh, that that container. So one, just you know, bringing in I don't know 300, 500, a thousand different sellers, uh, and, and, and combining, uh, aggregating their volume to get us a better price point. Uh, another a- uh, aspect is is basically the equivalent of doing buyers consolidations. If you're familiar with uh, um, that term, uh, a lot of people in the industry would be, which is basically uh, these goods are all coming into Castlegate fulfillment centers, Wayfair's fulfillment centers. And we would take what maybe what used to be one full container and go to the coast and then get redistributed through the country. And instead, we just do it at the origin um, and, and, uh, and, and move a contain, one container with multiple sellers in it to one of our inland ports or one of our other, excuse me, inland warehouses or one of the other warehouses versus just bringing it into the coast. And, and again, from a cost standpoint, I mean, think about the cost of bringing it into a coast and then trucking it to an inland point. Quite frankly, that trucking to the inland points probably is expensive, maybe not quite in today's environment, but probably as expensive as just moving a, a container the whole way there. But now you're moving it to the coast and trucking it, and that's more expensive than just moving the container the whole way there. So, Yeah, given, uh, given the rates right now, a lot of very difficult decisions to be made. John, you talked about uh, a moment ago about how you know some carriers are, are turning their backs on small shippers. That hasn't been the case uh, at Wayfair, and one of those reasons is because of how much you're growing and expected to grow over the pat of the next you know several years, several decades, likely. Talk to me about what that's like um, having carriers that do want to work with you, and possibly you guys changing with what you might ask from them. They might have an appetite for other services, whether it be Dre or some other sure. you know um, sure. ancestral services. There, talk to me about how you guys work with them. A little bit of scratch your back, scratch my back type of deal. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if maybe that is what it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, I think the answer at the end of the day is in a time like this, um, I think in general, you need to be open-minded from the traditional approach. Um, The traditional approach on Trans-Pacific being specifically, I'll go to market somewhere around March I'll, some 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 of the sellers and that are fairly sophisticated that are that that work with us um, are like no I'm going to sweat out the carrier I'm going to wait to the end and I'm going to get to the end of April I may not even sign sign until May that was a really detrimental strategy this year a really bad strategy because a lot of those people that did that got to the end of April and the carriers said yeah I'm I, I'm out of I'm out of space I, mean, I had carriers and anybody that's in the business probably heard this. I mean, we had carriers that say, yeah, our vessels are sold. And it was like March 15th, right. you know, way ahead of time. So, um, you know, from, from, from that standpoint, you know, you really have to kind of do some soul searching, quite frankly. And, and, and part of that is what's my risk? What's my appetite for risk? And you make decisions and, you know, maybe you sign a long-term deal. If you get a carrier that's interested in doing that, maybe you, um, Maybe some carriers offer Dre services. You know, maybe you use those Dre services where traditionally you might not have in the past. You know, maybe you help you use them to help coordinate orders out of factories overseas because some carriers offer offer those services. Um, you know, so you might have to think differently in your approach. Again, multi-year contract. I, I, I had somebody say to me, "Yeah, but what happens when the rates return?" Well, I'm not thinking that they're going to get back to what we enjoyed a year ago, at least until after 2023. My opinion, a lot of other people's opinions, you know, you read what's going on in the industry. And so, okay, what's my risk, you know? And, and if I move 
without getting into the math because I don't have a spreadsheet in front of me, but it basically, if I end up paying a premium right now of a thousand and I'm going to end, you know, over what I had, but I'm going to continue that out for three years, the, the, the number of container, the price per container has got to drop a lot to make it not worth my while to buy that thousand dollar premium for three years. Plus my, in the meantime, theoretically, my containers are moving. Right. Right. So, so yeah, just have to break convention and not think the way you've always thought. Yeah, I'm with you in thinking that this these ocean pricings are going to last for a long time. No matter what the supply and demand dynamic, it just seems that this pricing power that ocean carriers have uh, have gotten over the past year, it's going to be really hard for them to let that go. I think they're going to do whatever they can to protect that pricing power. When you when you're talking about long and short term contracts, this is a discussion I wanted to ask you about. You know what 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 kind of decisions go into that? What kind of data are you guys looking into to decide uh, between whether we should go with this short or a longer term contract? But you guys, because you guys are growing so much, you're going to have exponentially more TEUs yeah. in two years than you are right now. So, what does that decision tree look like? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, you, you, sure. What are we going to do next year? What are we going to do in two years from now? So you kind of we have a view on that. And you know what the crazy part is when I sat down with carriers four years ago and started negotiating from a position of having zero containers because we were new into the space, we've pretty much hit what we said we were going to do along the way. Um, close enough that, you know, people, when we say we're going to grow to this level next year and this level the year after that, um, they, they listen. Um, you know, so you know, we have this perspective of what our growth is going to be. But then, you know, secondly, um, just from the standpoint of, uh, uh, you know, you just got to do the math, quite frankly. I mean, what do we think the rates are going to look like a year from now? Are they going to be less? Are they going to be more? Um, if they're the same, then it's a no-brainer, right? If they drop, you know, maybe you negotiate some some reset of pricing in your deal. I mean, everybody has their different, I'll call it stylistic approach to their contracts of what they think is right. Um, and probably all of them can be right and all of them can be wrong. Um, you just have to do what, what makes sense for you. Um, I just would suggest sitting on your hands and doing nothing is not going to be helpful. You're still going to be paying $15,000, if not more for a container a year from now, two years from now. Yeah. Uh, inactivity is probably the wrong move at this point. John, thank you. This has been, this has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed the time. We're coming up on our time here. I just wanted to finish up with maybe just a couple lessons, some of the things that you and your team have learned over the past 18 months dealing with these very choppy waters. What have you guys learned and what are you going to take forward with you into hopefully a soon-to-be post-pandemic world? Um, yeah, I guess, you know, just as an example, not be afraid to do something, not be able to, afraid to make a move. And, um, I mean, look, we're in a fortunate position because of our growth and the carriers want to know us and, and want to do business with us. But um, uh, and the carriers that we established a high level in their organization relationship have been there for us. And if I learned something, um, there were a few we didn't. And I'm sitting, you know, looking in the mirror saying, I wish I had I wish I had struck that relationship with you know, carrier A or carrier B um, because carrier C and D are like, know us, want to be a part of our future. Um, and um, you know, certainly we could use one or two more carriers you know, who can't in in in, uh, in our portfolio. So, um, um, you know, not be not uh, use your data, think differently, uh, be willing to 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 take a risk, or assess your your appetite for risk, be willing to take it, and um, uh, and learn quickly from you know your your gaps and your failings. Um, I think, I think that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you, John. I, I, things brings me back to that uh, Chinese proverb, uh, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, next best time is this afternoon. Something like that, gotta always open conversations. John, thanks so much for the time. Hey, where should we send anybody that wants to get in touch with you or learn more about your team? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn very easily, probably the easiest way. Cool. Uh, and I'm, I pretty much check my LinkedIn a couple times a day. So uh, um, there's, I think there's two other Johns, John or one other John Esborn. I'm not the one that's in Stockholm. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time today, John. We'll be seeing more of you very shortly. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Bye. All right, everyone, that has been it for episode 20 of the Point of Sale Show, the retail supply chain show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. This has been the breakdown, international breakdown of Wayfair's supply chain. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Point of Sale wherever you listen to podcasts, either Apple Music or Spotify. You can also find everything that FreightWaves does in audio form in one tidy feed by subscribing to FreightCast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are not a subscriber to the Point of Sale newsletter, go ahead and join me there at FreightWaves.com POS. You can get some of the more in-depth coverage of these topics. It comes out twice weekly. Join us there. All right, that's been it for Point of Sale, episode 20. We will see you next week. Wow.